bollocks. It's it's basically. I I actually think it's English that, and it's bollocks. That actually, you know, fundamentally, it's it's examining a large part of what makes England and therefore Great Britain, England and Great Britain. You can't you can't not talk about these things. And people mm. should know more about them. I also think it's like in general, if we do want to grow the pod, we have to basically expand out of just rowing. And we both have a lot of expertise in lots of different areas. And when sort of like a kidney specialist tells you that I he that I know more about EPO than he does, mm. you'd probably like think, okay, right, let's let's do a podcast on that. Broken Oz University, the you okay. know. Using our, they're using our brains bit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Broken Oars podcast. And in this episode, we are going to announce the inauguration, the official inauguration, because we've been doing this for a while, particularly uh, my partner in pod, Dr. Aaron Jackson, um, of the Broken Oars University, which is going to be a slightly different format and possibly a little bit more serious and a little bit more researched than the things we've done. And we're going to be looking at, I think, the ethics and the science behind sport in a little bit more detail. And we are going to try and bring you some of, rather than just like the witty banter and hilarious verbiage that we normally engage in we're going to try and bring you a little bit of the expertise and experience that we have over the past two decades two decades getting of, well for that. um competing and training in rowing and um as part of this we would again just like to remind everybody that making a podcast and broadcasting that podcast is not in fact free and it does take a degree of investment and if you would like if you are enjoying the content and you would like to support the podcast please uh use our buy me a coffee webpage where for the price of i think probably a venti mocha latte um you can help support the pod and keep it going and um stop my wife from asking me just how much a subscription to zoom costs venti mocha latte that's like a large in geordie that would be a large milky coffee right something like that with with chocolate in it oh well now now that's well worth the price of admission i think i mean and i I, I'm, I'm prepared, probably like chocolate and maybe like whipped cream on the top. Oh, do you live high on the hog down south, don't you? I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say I have never partaken of because, you know, anything that fundamentally is coffee and whipped cream, I, I'm drawn to, but it, it's not something I, I feel the need to go back to. Okay. So the Broken Oz University, so it's... I like the idea that, you know, we're actually going to do some research because that time when Andy Triggs Hodge came on and we went, I'm sorry, who, who are you? Do we know you? Uh, it was incredibly <laughs> embarrassing. Um, well, I mean, okay. Okay. It's, it's not particularly hard to do. It's like research into people you sort of like childishly hero worship as, yes. as like men of enormous power with, with epic hair. Um, anyway, Aaron. Yes. How do you feel about, racing boats these days honestly 
and I'm saying this knowing that people that I row with will probably be listening to it, the thought of actually racing a boat used to fill me with, with, as we've just said, a childish excitement. I couldn't wait to get hands on and get on the water and put into practice the things we'd been, we'd been practicing and training for. And, and I loved competing and being in competition with other boats, largely because we tended to win quite a lot at Agecroft. Although as a caveat, our boat lost a huge amount before it started to win, which I think was a vital part of the learning process. But now that I'm old, and I don't sleep well, and I seem to have to wee a lot. The thought of getting on a cold river this head race season and attempting to race is filling me with absolute mortal dread. Yeah, you see, so so for me, it's there. There is that aspect. I, when I don't know, I mean, not too long ago. I, I don't think if if you if I was doing this six years ago when I was forty one. Um, before before I actually ended up in hospital with sepsis, um, I would have said that the week before a race, there was like next, you couldn't really rely on me to get anything else done other than the bare minimum of like going to work and getting the shopping in and maybe cooking food because every waking minute was thinking about getting to the race, who we were going to be racing, you know, stalking other crews on Facebook um, and like trying to work out what their 2K scores were, what else they'd won. And just like, right, we're going to get in there. Right, we need to absolutely smash it down the river and like looking at the course and, and doing all these things. And at some point, and it, it, it was, you know, it's my own fault, really. I crystallized this by asking on Twitter all the people who used to be rowers, who follow us, but now no longer row, why did they give up? And everything they said just resonated with me. Take us through it, that. It, it, it was like, so it was like, first of all, there's there's faff it's not that i can't do faff anymore i can faff for england but i wish to faff on my own terms i don't i don't want to faff at the boathouse i can't deal with other people faffing and so the process it, it's not so much the actual racing if you put me at the start line i'm ready to go it's everything that gets me to the start line and everything that gets me off the finish line that I can't, that doesn't make that bit in between worthwhile. So the the idea of driving, let's say, to Sudbury, which realistically is three hours away, lovely. If, if you haven't haven't raced at Sudbury, try and race at Sudbury. It's it's a great day out. It's a brilliant race, but the process of spending an hour and a half boat loading with a 25 minute car journey either side, then driving up there, racing for probably a grand total of eight minutes in a day. I mean, that, that that's what there's going to be like four 600 meter races. Okay, may, may, maybe like nine minutes. Let's not overestimate my speed here. 
Um, that was just, it's not enough. It, it, it doesn't, it's not, I don't want to race. It's not that I'm scared of like the cold or the pain or any of those things. It's all the other things that go with that are now just too much for me. So it's not, it's not even that I don't want to row. It's not even that I don't want to get out there. I'm, I'm actually thinking, you know, next Sunday, I'm going to go down. I'm just going to be a club member. I'm going to sit in a quad. I'm going to steer the quad and we're going to tootle down the river. And that's actually going to be a really, really pleasant way of spending a Sunday morning. But I know that I'm going to go down there on Sunday because the sessions start at 7.45, not 7 o'clock, because I can't stand waking up before 6 o'clock in the morning to get to the boathouse for 7. And it's just all these things. And I just realize I'm just too old and I can't take the pain. And also, I don't want to leave my family behind that much. I, that resonates. Um I'm going to throw this out there, and this might not resonate with you, but it might resonate with some others out there. I find racing challenging because I don't like being less than I used to be. Now, I'm going to qualify that because I don't think I should expect at this age to be as I was when we were training 20 plus hours a week and we were young and vigorous and full of testosterone, coffee and croissants. But COVID and long COVID have left quite a, um, a dent in my physical capacities. And I find it extremely challenging that I can't do what I used to do um, like I used to do it. So maybe, you know, that's possibly a self-esteem issue. Uh, I'm sure the psychologists out there will be diagnosing me even as we speak, but um I remember being able to do this well, and I don't like not doing it well. And that feeds into if you're going to spend an entire day going to a head race or a regatta, even if you can't pull the same splits, you still want to have a good, you want to have a good row. You want yeah. it to be, you want it to be technically good from start to finish and, and a, a feeling like you've executed as well as you can at your current level. And if I don't do that and, and the people around me in my boat do fantastically well, but I always come off the water feeling like I should have done so much better. And that's, that's quite a hard, it's quite a hard pill to swallow the mortality pill. Yeah. I mean, th this is the, the Al Taylor argument, isn't it? Um, because when I put that question up on Twitter and I said, why did it, people do it? So what he said, and he's, I'm, I'm worried that Al is just like a much, more clever individual than I am, possibly more talented, but we'll get onto that. Um, he said, I have certain fundamental standards about what rowing should be like when I get into a boat. And it should be, you know, it should, the boat should go this fast and the blade should be off the water and everybody should be in time and it doesn't matter whether it's a quad or a double or an eight or some like weird boat that Stampley made that's got 24 people in it it should things should happen in a certain way mm. um and 
again, yeah, that that resonates with me. And also, I would say where I am, where I think I'm definitely kind of partly lazy, partly egotistical, is I don't actually believe that all the technical sides of like, it's going to go a bit slower, but fundamentally we shall be rowing like gods. Mm. That is, I think that is something I can get back to. And that's something that I can sit in a crew and get that crew back to. Mm -hmm. But one thing I don't think I have the ability to do is spend the amount of time in the boat on the river that would allow us to get back to that level. I think it's one of the it's one of the paradoxes of being well one of the paradoxes of the human condition. So I feel now like my understanding and my knowledge is better than it's ever been. I feel that in certain ways my feel and my tech my technical knowledge and application is probably better than it's ever been, but I can't physically do it like I used to do it. And you know that thing, there was always one person in a boathouse who would pull eight and a half minutes and go, but I should be in the Henley eight because my technique is so superior that I will, that it will magically translate. I think we've we, got we can have, both name him. We can both name him. We can both name him. But, but we're we not will. going to because we're kind and decent people. Because we're kind and decent people. Now we're a bit older. That whole, I should be in the boat because I'm technically better than everyone else argument, even though you couldn't pull the skin off a rice pudding. I think you have to have the whole package. You have to have the whole, the whole complex. And the other thing is that one of the reasons why rowers train so long and so hard and put such a huge aerobic base in place is because the fitter you are, the longer you can retain and maintain your technical application at a high level. So as you get tired, you're, you, you, as you get fatigued, you tend to have a drop off in technical application. The fitter you are, the longer you can go at, at a, at a, at a higher standard. So I guess it probably reflects a little bit poorly on myself that I feel like that about it, but I love it too much to want to do it badly. If that makes any sense as no, well. No, I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you know, all the people who, who are saying things like, you know, I love being outside and I love training and I love going outside and then, but getting on my bike or going for a run means I step outside of my door and I turn left as opposed to I step outside of my door, I drive for 25 minutes or I take a tube ride for 45 minutes, whatever it is that you have to do to get to your boathouse. And then I faff around for another 20 minutes, getting the boat on the water and the oars out and all those things. That, you know, it, I, I think we all live fairly, also, I think we feel we all live fairly time-pressed lives and time is a very valuable function and when you're doing that, you kind of, it, it, you, you feel the costs and benefits start to, mm. um, and, and when you magnify out that to a, a day at, a day at the races, shall we say, um, where you, you could be driving for 120 miles in each direction mm. just to race for, I mean, I do, I do know people who were, you know, back in, back in the glory days of masters, uh, racing, 
at least for me um there are people who were who would drive all the way to home pierpoint literally to do one race one three minute race and they go all the way there from kent do one race win it collect the medals drive all the way back and it's a you know it's a bit difficult to sit down and have a beer with the boys when you've got a <laughs> three hour four hour drive um afterwards um because you know you're gonna crash i think you have to yeah i think you have to if you're going to have if you're going to race you have to stack the card don't you you you, you have to I don't know, be, be in the, in the master's quad in the first division and then do a, a double in the second division. And if there's a third division, maybe do a mixed quad or a single yeah. or on, on a head race. Or, I mean, I, we did Hexham this year and I have to, and talking Tarn and I thoroughly enjoyed both days. Did we didn't row particularly well, which was, I found incredibly disappointing because we, we'd been, rehearsing is the wrong word but you you know what i mean we'd been we'd we'd put in place what we wanted to do and we'd achieved it in training and then we got on the start line and went we're in a race bring the arms in the day was massively enjoyable but it was a it was a long day for uh so yeah you've got it was a long day so you've got to stack the card you've got to give you if you're going to go and race you've got i think you've got to give yourself options it's just the it's just the physical diminishment that that I that I kind of struggle with. I'm not enjoying it in daily life, let, a ro- let alone in rowing life. Um, parenthetically, you know, th- throwing in a word as my brain cells slowly rebuild themselves. Did you know that Pete Holmes used to be a member of Spitfire? What the Pete Holmes? Yes, the Pete Holmes. Did he live yeah. in Kent? Yeah, it's an. Um, I was reading his book because one should read books about rowing technique regularly. Um, and as well as Latimer and Hammersmith and um, the Oxbridge College that he went to, he rode for Spitfire in Kent. I know we've been around for a while, but no, I had no idea. Well, then um, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put up like a little, I'll, I'll scratch something in the wall of the boathouse. I just said, Pete Holmes was here um genius coach genius coach should we are we actually talking about our physical diminishment because we're setting up the idea of both of us getting on the testosterone patches or injections and is 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 this a neat segue into the drugs and sport debate for for those who don't know the origin of this discussion myself and aaron and we'll talk about this in a second we are i think profoundly morally opposed and i think possibly practically opposed to the use of performance enhancing drugs and substances of any form in sport. Absolutely. So rules is rules. If it's on the banned list, don't take it. If it's not on the banned list, you can take it because sport without rules is fundamentally war. Yeah, or, or chaos. You need to yeah. have the you need to have the arbitrary. You know, a basketball court is X by X, and the and the the baskets are X high, and this you know. The, yeah. You need to have the the rules. Otherwise, it's basically just do what you want when you want, which yeah. could very quickly turn into um, marching into the Sudetenland and then taking back the the Rhine demilitarized zone. Indeed. Um... So, so yeah, I mean, th- this is 
you know, th- this is our absolute kind of like thing. But um, as we get on a bit, and we we had a guest on the podcast who is very open about this, mm. who um, Mark Lewis, who is a very very successful YouTuber who makes some very entertaining content, and you should probably go and look him up. Um, and he's never made doing a park run seem as interesting as you know no one has made it seem as interesting as he does well i've done but, a park run it's not it's not that interesting and yet he manages to make it seem interesting it, I, the the tension that he brings to whether he's going to beat 19 minutes in a park in a 5k park run is i mean it it's up it's up there with the great works of Spielberg, frankly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's right up there with will Frodo destroy the ring? Will he not destroy the ring? It, it's that kind of tension that we're talking about. Now, he he is he's quite open about the fact that he is on the old testosterone replacement therapy. Indeed. And, and um, I actually think this is, this is one of the great unspoken scandals waiting to happen. I mean, it's not necessarily a scandal, but it's one of the great unspoken challenges waiting to happen within sport, and particularly in master sport, that you have very large numbers of people, an increasing number of people, particularly in the United States, but um, increasingly in this country, over the age of, frankly, I'm going to say 35. It's starting. Pretty much, I think people are starting to get on this about 35, but realistically, it's mostly over the age of 45, 50, who say life isn't as much fun as it used to be. I'm going to get some hormonal support from the doctor. And this has actually been going on for a very, very long time. And then they say, oh, I feel remarkably chipper and strong, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to compete in the sport that I used to love. And they find they probably do remarkably well. Um, And so I think this challenge between people genuinely being prescribed something for their health and or well-being. And then turning around and say, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to do sport now. Is going to be a major ethical minefield because, you know, all these people on the testosterone, and this is men as well as women, because a large number of hormone replacement therapies for women, not on the NHS, but anybody who's in a private clinic getting hormone replacement therapy as a lady will also probably be prescribed low doses of testosterone because women do have testosterone. Mm. It is part of their healthy physiological makeup, just at very low doses. And but if you are getting exogenous testosterone of any form, you are breaking the rules of any kind of normally recognized sport out there. Yeah, you'll come up against most of the regulatory bodies in this country, unless your name is Connor Ben, and then you can claim that as VADA did the test, it doesn't count as a UCAD test, so you can get off on a jurisdictional technicality. Um, but yeah, there's going to, because we're now more into health and fitness and well-being and being all that we can be for as long as we can be, and because we have 
podcasters, not just Mark, but but people like Joe Rogan, who are quite open about their use of human growth hormone and um, and testosterone and various other things. And it is quite a thing in America, from what I've been able to read up on. It it it's definitely coming here. It's you know it's already here, but what I mean is it's already growing. So there's going to be that crossover point between when you're using it because you can't sleep or because you're you're um, struggling with depression. A lot of depression is hormonally linked, uh, but you're also rowing. I'd like to think that most rowers are fundamentally decent people and will stick to the dose that just makes them feel that they can go about their day and get a good night's sleep. But rowers are also incredibly fundamentally massively competitive. So if you can start pushing back to where you used to be or get a little bit quicker to beat, you know, the the bloke in the single next to you at a master's division, it could be a tricky one. It, it could be a very, very tricky one. And the problem is, the real problem that I think is going to be an issue is that if you say, ah, oh, right, okay, we're going to say anyone in, so where where am I now? I'm this year on Masters D. So I'm 47, I'm going to be 48, so I can compete this year in Masters D. So let's take six years on for that, Masters E, 54 um, and upwards. So the year of your 54th birthday let's say, I don't know, British rowing or UK anti-doping says this much testosterone supplementation is allowed. How do you then say to the people at, um, because, and then you say, right, it's a level playing field for all of Masters E. But sometimes Masters E doesn't only race with other Masters E athletes. Mm. You can literally have Masters E, Masters D, Masters C boats on a time adjusted. So the first ping goes off and Masters E goes, the second ping off, Masters D, third and Masters C. And I've been in a race like that. And it was actually because I think it was the Wallingford Masters D boat went off ahead of us. And I was in the mentality, we, we have to catch them in like 15 strokes. And it was a thousand meter race. And I have never blown so badly in a race. I've also never been as fast in a quad. We had the GPS on. And the trace was just, it was so fantastic. It was like 122s in a boat, not on the ergo, in a quad, 122s, smashing it down there. That, there was obviously a tailwind that day. And then the really, really hilarious thing is what happened about 550 meters in when those 122s became 142s and a large number of boats went past us and there's there's actually uh there's actually quite a good picture of the boat at i think probably with about eight uh no with about 150 meters to go so at 850 meters and i remember just actually being in and I, you look at it and it's just like oh, there's a man who's, who's rowing and the arms are straight at the catch and the legs are bent and it's, it's all. And I just remember actually worrying that I was going to die 
Um, I was just in such a bad way. It was terrible. However, I am going to remember those 122s happily for the three strokes that they lasted. Um, but anyway, yes. So, but again, it's this thing that you could technically have a race at the British Masters Championships where the E quad is racing a D quad and the D quad is a bunch of 52 year old men and the E quad is a bunch of 53 and 54 year old men all of whom are basically massively more muscular and fit looking because they've been allowed that extra supplementation and I don't think you're going to be able to arrange to have that kind of, you're not going to just keep it in Master's E. It's going to work its way down. Yeah. Along with the fact that it's it's already in women's sport. It's going to work its way down because people aren't just going to take it for sport, although they'll certainly use it for sport. It's people are going to take it because they want to maintain a certain self-image, a certain yep. lifestyle, a certain belief about a belief system that they have about themselves and who they are and what they do. And they want to maybe look a little bit better and a little bit more buff. You know, it's uh, past 35. It's, 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 you can hang on to muscle tone, but you've got to work damn hard to hang on to muscle tone, you know, let alone build new muscle. Um, it's going you've to be very- you that too, have you? Uh, yeah, massively. <laughs> You know, they talk about that thing of old man strength and old man grip strength. Well, you might develop that, but you don't necessarily have the rippling pecs, shoulders and biceps that you used to have when you're doing it, um, when you're displaying your old man strength. Um, so I think it's going to be incredibly hard to regulate. And without sounding too contentious, I understand why British rowing took so long to work through the trans policy because it's a very it's a it's a it's a minefield and they had to tread very carefully but if it took them that long to deal with an issue that now goes back to pre-covid this this supplementation issue has been around for longer than that i would say the idea yeah. of, of of therapeutic use and the idea of therapeutic use hormone replacement therapy um I think the legislation will be a long time in catching up with the reality. Do you know what I think the solution to it is? Go on then. Athletes being completely open and honest about what they're, what they're doing. So if you are on hormone replacement therapy, and okay, I mean, I'm I'm not going to say if you're on the full Lance Armstrong stack of blood transfusions, corticosteroids, testosterone, and just a little smidgen of Dianabol for flavour. Okay, it's probably not going to happen. But if you if you go to your doctor and you're receiving because again for because you can't sleep more than six hours a night, or because you've got no energy but you've still got a career that you've got to do, or because and you know, I'd like to point out that I'm I'm not just talking about myself. These aren't just like no, he's talking about issues, but you know, it's like there is there's the whole thing of sexual function. There is personal image. There is just not feeling slightly rubbish and a bit broken down every single day of the week. Um, which are all things that I believe that people that the hormone replacement companies out there say is going to improve 
I just think you have to be honest about it. And I think you have to turn around and you put on your social media, da, 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 receiving HRT from this clinic. And you- people can then turn around and decide if they still want to race with you. That would be nice. And I think that would be a good way to do it. But I'm just going to throw a couple of observations in here. Firstly, I've never heard any rower anywhere at any age talk about their recent 2K test without massively qualifying it. Uh, and you might think, well, it's a big step from that to just being saying, yes, I, I take I take HRT. Um, but the point that I'm making is that we all create narratives about ourselves and our achievements um, and who we are and what we do. And the second thing is, will there not, it would be good if people could do that, but I remember the kind of, not the, not the silence around the, the menopause for women, but I, I do kind of re- remember in a less enlightened age that the whole menopause, hot flushes, going through the change thing was a massively uncomfortable thing for um, women once upon a time. And is there not something of that in, I mean, God, you know what men are like with our egos and our preening and look at the size of my biceps. Have you seen my dog? How big is he? He's about this big. He was last seen over there. All of those kind of jokes. Okay, we we, we, we need we need to get like the full video of that because ladies and gentlemen, if you don't understand what is actually a proud age craft traditional of the, have you seen my dog dance? And it is a dance. It just doesn't have any music, um, yeah. but it has a very, very clear order of the moves you have to pull you you can't quite understand the reference um i don't know if there's something on youtube i'm not sure it fits in with our new serious image of the broken laws university but it's something you really should look up as a rower as a man who or a woman who uh wears lycra all the time it, it used to put the fear of god into the opposition and also members of the opposite sex but to ask people to just be upfront about their HRT usage is maybe a big step. Um, yeah, I, I think it is a big step, but I think it's mm. a big step that we all actually have to be grown up about. And I think um, our our respective governing bodies, whatever governing bodies they are, whether it's for rowing or cycling, uh, apparently it's a big issue in cycling. Lots of like, you know, remarkably lean and well-muscled 59-year-olds um, on the time-trialing scene. Um, they have to, they've got to lay down clear rules. We've got to be open with it. And so ev- everything we then do, it's just like you can, you can literally, so you go to a, a race and say, this is me, this is how I'm racing. I'd like to race for time only. And I'm not, I'm not going to get, and it might just be that that's that. And if if um if British rowing want to ban me, if I go down that road, I'm not saying I am going down that road. Um, because if I did go down that road, it'd be podcast gold, absolute gold. Um, to discuss it. But if someone like me who does compete in various events goes down that road. I think the only thing to do is be competitive, is be honest, have an asterisk by your name, and essentially 
you shouldn't take medals from anyone else. I would agree I, with I, that. I, I, think, I think you can put yourself in the list of times, um, but you should only really compete in things like time trials, not knockout competitions. Yeah. So I, I don't, it, it's not okay to get to the final of an event and say, oh, look, you can just, um, you can just put me on, you can put me on the asterisk list because this is, you know, I'm basically my urine sample actually will dissolve your sample bottle um, because that's what's in it. I, if you've actually knocked somebody out of the final, I don't think that's reasonable. I think it's actually entirely reasonable just to go to a head race or a time trial and say, I'm competing for time only. Please don't include me in any list of results. It would take a bit of a cultural shift because as rowers, we like nothing better than shiny, shiny things. Uh, anyone who's ever seen the, the children's film, The Secret of Nim, will get that reference. If you haven't seen the children's film, The Secret of Nim, go and see it. It's a masterpiece. Um, uh, also, if you have children, they they will enjoy it. It can be quite dark in places. But I think you're right. I think you have to put the sport above yourself. Um, yes. And that's the key thing. And that perhaps leads us quite nimbly on to Lewin, old friend, old colleague, the Enhanced Games. So the Enhanced Games debate was that, first of all, the morality surrounding the use of drugs in sport mm. is actually a very new, it's a very modern thing. It's a, it's a consequence of the war on drugs. It's very hypocritical. And it's ineffective. Mm. So, and, it, the, and the enhanced and, games, for those who don't know, are a kind of quasi Olympics where you're allowed to take, in inverted commas, you are allowed to take, in inverted commas, whatever you want. And their 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 strapline is: come and see us and see the world's fastest and strongest athletes. Essentially, um, I don't believe them. So, I mean, one of the big things they say is that actually sports testing restricts the development of, or, or drug testing restricts the development of new sports mm. because it's so damn expensive and mm. you, you just can't do it now. And they say, what we're going to do is we're just going to say it, it's a free for all. You can take whatever you want. I don't believe them. I fundamentally don't believe them. I don't believe when they say they can take whatever they want, they've actually got a list of things in their head. So they're going to say, first of all, erythropoietin. You can take erythropoietin. We've got genuinely lots. Um, my wife watched the um, the kind of fictional movie uh, about Lance Armstrong and his career. and um, Oh, the program. The program. Yeah, which is it's quite a good movie. It's not a brilliant movie. It's quite a good movie. Okay. Um. And but she she was watching the scene where Michelle Ferrari discovered EPO for the first time and learned mm -hmm. about it. EPO, which has been on the uh, on sale over the counter in Switzerland since the late eighties. Who won? The men's single skull in 1992. Don't answer that question. Okay. 
in Switzerland, over the counter. Right. Okay. Well, there you Without go. a prescription. We'll just, we'll just, we'll leave it there. Which unfancied athlete won the men's single skulls in the Olympics in 1992? To be fair to Switzerland, though, they have a long and proud tradition of hiding illegally gotten Nazi gold, chocolate, and uh, PEDs. Also, cuckoo clocks, I believe. Indeed. Indeed. Which they may be used for timing. Um, but the enhanced games thing was you can take what you want, but you don't believe that, and I don't believe that because I've read your notes. And why is that, Lewin? Why, why would okay, it... Okay, so... Why, are, are you are you going so the thing is you may say we're going to allow all our sprinters to take the full um balco cocktail of thg so the cream the clear um the you know the testosterone the erythropoietin and the modafinil which is responsible for one of the two only uh bands issued to British rowing athletes. But of course, actually, it was not a performance enhancing drug, it's a study enhancing drug, even though all of the Balco athletes were on modafinil. But moving swiftly on, um, you may allow them to take all of that, but you're not going to allow them to take a cocktail of methamphetamine and PCP. So it would be so funny. They'd be um... killing each other on the start line. Yeah. I mean that's that's the thing. You're you're going to have to test for something. You're not going to let your athletes take brandy and strychnine. You're not going to let them use dinitrophenol as a cutting agent. You're not going to let them use LSD as a pain deadening agent in the road race. Because you're not, you're not going to let them take mushrooms before the shot put. No because they'll throw the damn shot put in the wrong direction and the judge will get squashed by a shot put. Yeah, but but they'll throw it in that direction to kill the goblins that are coming for them. And the brandy and strychnine thing was because in the early days of the Tour de France, what did they used to take to get them through? Um, brandy and sometimes strychnine. No, the, the, um, the classic story is apparently from the 1904 Olympics in Louisville. Um, where the winner of the marathon mm. what 1904 maybe 1908 i need to look it up um listen to a podcast about it was uh taking a cocktail of brandy and strychnine and this was openly admitted to by his doctor and they said it was a triumph of basically that athlete's bravery to take this and the appliance of science now funnily enough the taking of brandy and strychnine has led to fatalities, which is why it got banned. Well, you know, you know, strychnine, it's very Moorish, but it is used to be used in things like rat poison and also people who used to kill their spouses. So yeah. it's probably not great. Um, it's essentially what it does. It encourages your muscles to contract. And if you take too much of it, your muscles don't stop contracting, uh, which is bad. Um, but and again, dinitrophenol uh, is literally the best weight loss agent out there. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, don't take it. It's death. And every year people get hold of this stuff and they take a little bit, genuinely just a little bit too much of it. 
and they die and it takes them a few hours and i don't know if it's horrifically painful or not but i do know that they see it com coming as their entire body's energy metabolism system shuts down their aerobic and their anaerobic metabolism shuts down and they're just all the other bits which just metabolize fat are just spinning around sp spinning around and releasing loads of triglycerides and glucose into their bloodstream to be used up and it doesn't work because um dinitrophenol blocks the stuff that makes atp and so they have no atp and they die um and so that's going to be banned just because it's too dangerous so the point is not just that the enhanced game strapline of come and see the world's fastest, fastest athletes, you can take whatever you want, is essentially marketing. Um, it's also completely unworkable in the real world. Yeah, because um, let's face it, anywhere in the Western world, there, there are kind of like liability rules and there are health and safety rules. And you can't say to people, you can take methamphetamine and PCP and brandy and strychnine, and you can use dinitrophenol as a cutting agent, because if you do that, you will be then liable for their deaths at some level. And so nobody will ever, you know, allow those things in their sport. So there's still going to be some level of testing. So mm -hmm. it, it's all you're doing. You're not saying there is no ban. You're just moving the line about what is banned and what is not banned and you're still going to have to test and you're still going to have to have sanctions and you're still going to have enforcement and you're still going to have imperfect testing and imperfect sanctions and imperfect enforcement and so what's the difference other than the fact you've probably got more athletes dying well would you not also say given that every winner bar what everyone who's appeared in olympic in a, an olympic men's 100 meter final bar one person going back to 1984 has subsequently pinged for something would you not say that we already have an enhanced games i think or is, we that, do. is that going to get us in trouble with lawyers um well i mean i would i would say we do have the enhanced games and uh, this year, it was held at the Alliance Energy Center in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and you can look that one up for yourself. Lots of events have been held at the Alliance Energy Center in Madison, Wisconsin this year. Um, and we're not going to mention which one it is. But I do believe that we already have events where sporting events where the attitude towards drug testing is so lax you might as well already call them the enhanced games but they still have to pretend they still have to have some limits on what athletes are allowed to do essentially to prevent athletes from dying Yes, it's incredibly painful because I grew up watching Daley Thompson and thinking that basically he was a modern day equivalent of Superman and he did it all with a slight paunch and a dad bod and a mustache. He didn't look as rich. Yeah, it was as, a great moustache. It, it was, was a it, it was one of the best moustaches. Him and Tom Selleck, I think. Well, in a in a decade dominated by facial hair, I think I think Daley Thompson's mustache and Tom Selleck's mustaches were kind of prime alpha male mustache territory, certainly. Basically, 
Um, and he did, he did it all with a with a dad bod. He he, he had the sort of bod that a, a Instagram influencer now would would reject as well being the before picture. Um, and it's I, weird. I, I, he, he he genuinely did. I mean, yeah. it, I mean, I, I I think dad bod is slightly unfair. He's not a man who would ever like would say, oh, "I'm not taking my shirt off at the beach." Yeah. Um, you you never say, "Oh my god, put it away," sort of thing. He he looked like a fit, healthy individual with a fair bit of muscle tone on him, pretty yeah. strong legs. Yeah, but no, if he would not have competed um, on Instagram, it just wouldn't have happened. Um, wouldn't have happened, and and and, and he was arguably in what 1984 and 1988 1884 great, i think yeah yeah the the greatest all-round athlete in the world by a margin by a concept by, by a margin and and the point i'm making is i, I genuinely love sport i like being active I, I think it's a i think our bodies are built to be used and i think that we are we are happier and happiest when we are actually using them but i do tend to watch world championships and olympics and various sporting events now and i i don't feel the same sense of magic and wonder because the scales have been pulled from my eyes too many times yeah. too many people have, have 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 done the i'm not guilty dance i would never take anything like that dance i don't know how this has happened dance i will the i vow to clear my name dance and the drug cheats they are unfortunately um yes but Hmm. I mean, okay. This is this is the next thing. So this is the next enhanced games argument. It's, I mean, again, right? We've got to talk about this and keep promising to talk about this. But talent. They say what they're doing is they are leveling the genetic playing field. Hmm. And they say, so some people were born with those fast twitch muscle fibers and the ability to develop and huge amounts of musculature, and some people weren't. And what they're saying is, if you just, if you just let, let people take whatever they want, actually, we're, we're leveling the playing field. And I just don't believe that. I don't think because that's the case. I don't think that's the case. Go on. Well, first of all, I actually think that that's what sport is there to do. It is there to see which way the genetic playing field is tilting. And secondly, this is something that, you know, is, is a relatively kind of esoteric point, but I think very important one your response to a pharmaceutical intervention is entirely genetically determined. So there's some people out there who can um, guzzle, you know, codeine all day, and it has no effect on their headache. There's some people who take half a paracetamol and they go to sleep for the rest of the day. Your response to a pharmaceutical is governed by what is known as admetox. Um, so absorption, uh, metabolism, excretion, and uh, toxicity. Admetox, yeah, um, 
all these things. So how it gets into your body, how it gets metabolized by your body, whether you suffer from side effects or you don't suffer from side effects. And so instead of having a genetic playing field for who's the fastest runner, you now have a genetic playing field for who can survive the side effects of trenbolone acetate better than someone else, which I don't think, I don't think that's necessarily better. Well, I don't think it's necessarily better or a good thing. And this might be the wrong metaphor, but isn't, isn't sport a bit of a, of a sorting hat? So basically you have to go into it and you have to, you have to see what you can do with what you've got. Yes. Um, is is basically and you could say that's unfair or you could say it is the great sorting hat where you you if you some people will be born and we can we i think we should do an episode about talent at some point because it's an interesting debate but some people will be born with the with the genetic ability to become olympic level rowers and some people will be mark hancock who are born to with the ability to develop a preternaturally good boat feel, but they will never have the height and the wingspan and the lung capacity to become an Olympic rower. doesn't mean that they're not a very good rower and, you, uh, and they're not a very good oarsman and they won't do things in the sport that they can be proud of, but you have to see how far you can go with what you've got. That's, and you that's... have to accept failure. You have to accept at some point someone else is going to be better than you. I think that you have to because the sheer statistical data or data, as Drew would say, of it is that even the very, very best in the world, the people who cross the line first at the Olympics or the World Championships and wait for the world to catch up with them, are only the very, very best in the world very, very briefly before someone else then comes along to become the best in the world. And below that point of the pyramid, there, there is a there is a vast amount of people um, who aren't the best in the world. They might not even be the best at an international level. They might not even be the best at a national level. They might not be the best in their school. They might not even be the best in their house. And given how fast my daughters can now run, I'm experiencing that quite painfully. Um, so the idea that sport is unfair, yes, it's fundamentally, it's inherently unfair because we'd all like to be Olympic champions. But as Eric Murray pointed out, if you're not happy before you win the Olympic gold, winning an Olympic gold will not make you happy. So sport has to be about more than self-esteem and self-image, I think. Yes, um, I think so. I, to a certain extent, I think it has to be about the joy of sport, the joy of movement. Joy of um, and the joy of doing stuff with other people outdoors yeah it's supposed to be I mean, fun it's, yeah it's, to... It's, it's literally just like let's let's go and do these things um and, and, and i'm aware that two people lewin is the most competitive person i've ever met and I, i've been a rower so i've met a lot of competitive people and i even though i can't do it still refuse to be passed by any other boat on the river even if it means that i then spend the next week in hospital <laughs> So um, th that we've that we've said sports should be fun first um, 
maybe we're getting older and wiser, or maybe we're just hiding the fact we can no longer do it by going, yes, but it's fun. It should be fun. I don't know, but it should be because I mean, not- I, I, th- I but- think, I mean, honestly, I think there is a fun in competition and there, there is. is a fun in a bunch of grown men of a certain age plowing down the river more or less sideways in a cox quad in the maidstone kind of uh awesome head race and taking huge i mean genuinely huge pride in the fact that in a nine minute race they beat the king school canterbury j15 cox quad by and this is important point one of a second it was it was a big point one though it was, it was a big it, point one it it may it may have been a minute less alone point one of a second but we beat them we beat those damn 15 year old boys and and let that be a lesson to them about the uh you know about the way the land lies and the fact is that if we ran that race again today they'd slaughter us um but it was fun at the time and something you can look back on and, and makes you feel good about yourself. Yeah, so sport, I mean, and, and it was. It, it, it's just, it is that instantaneous thing. We were better than them that day, at that moment, for those nine minutes and no seconds versus nine minutes, no seconds, point one one. Yeah. Um, and, and, it was, and it was fun. And that's the point, um, because, I mean, you put in your notes, sport is unfair. Uh, I think it it can be. It, I think I think it's fun, but when sport then becomes monetized or sport becomes organized, and you know, a lot of the organizational thing in sports is a pyramid towards um, sporting franchises or sporting clubs or things where there's money and prize money and people get paid to compete. Um, once you get past, once you get into that element of national sport, international sport, um, regulatory bodies, Team GB's Australian Institute of Sport, what your sport becomes a testing place for genetic predisposition, as much as it becomes something that is um, just fun to do. Because you, you know, it's a nice day. Let's go down to the park with a football and a cricket bat and play and play cricket football or football cricket or tennis cricket. You know, just make a game up or, or whatever. The sport, it's testing, as you put, for individual genetic excellence within a system that is set up to test for that. Yeah, um, and what we're testing for is a very basic and very simple and actually quite natural kind of, I'm not even gonna say it's genetic excellence. I'm gonna say it's like genetic alignment with a certain, usually quite simple event, like how fast can you run for this distance? And everybody knows what that distance is. It's like, how many goals can you and your mates score in 90 minutes versus how many goals can they score? And it involves lots of running around and kicking a ball and having quite good eyesight and peripheral vision and stuff like that. But these are very, very kind of understood and accepted kind of partly social, partly nurtured, partly natural gifts 
that we value. I don't think anybody out there actually values your natural ability to not suffer from the side effects of Dianabol or oral tremble. Uh, is it? Yeah, oral trembolone. Um, yeah. I, I, I just that's not what sport is actually about. Um, and you can turn around and say sport is actually about winning, but again, sport is about winning within a pre-arranged set of rules. And if we've said we don't like we don't we don't like those things in our sport, we're going to actually outlaw them. You're not winning anything if you're stepping outside those rules. And I think in general, people just accept. No, don't take the steroids. Don't take the erythropoietin because it's not what we want to see. What we want to see is who is naturally gifted enough to be nurtured into a position when they can get up the Abduhue in 42 minutes. Yeah. I'm going to add a caveat to that. Uh, and sport is about winning. I think um... – Having talked to Kath Bishop uh, on the on the podcast and also um, read read her book, I think winning can mean a lot of different things. I don't want to enrage um, the slightly right wing tendency that goes, "Oh, everyone gets a medal now. Everyone gets a medal for showing up." But winning might just be doing a park run because you've been uh, you haven't moved off the couch for fifteen years, and you you t- you know winning might be getting out the door. For the first time, winning might be running from lamppost to lamppost, walking the next lamppost, winning because the the metrics of it mean in any given sport, there are more losers than winners who get medals on any given day in any given sport in any given competition. That's just the reality of it. So you have to take you have to take something from the act of doing. You have to find enjoyment in the doing and fun in the doing and release and immersion and and connection in the doing as well as you know the shiny shit at the end i think um i think so and are you and and again that has to be you know I, i think that is you know what we were saying about people being open and clear and transparent about their own goals and if you turn around and say my goal is to win this you're you're setting yourself up for, I don't know, lifetime of hurt, essentially, because there's there's going to be a hell of a lot of people who want to do that as well, mm. and unless you have very very clear evidence that you're going to win this thing, you need to really be thinking about, okay, this this is going to be very very difficult to achieve, and lots and lots of people are going to go out there and get in the way of you achieving that. Yeah. Um, Um, The other thing about the enhanced games is that surely it's going to be quite difficult to run because you have to find a country or jurisdiction that will let you have a bunch of athletes in who openly take drugs in front of the testing regimens and the legal, the legislative um, acts that have been passed. So that's not France, Italy, or Australia, or for that matter, any of their athletes, because yeah. it's actually doping is in those countries. It's 
it's a police matter. It, it's people with badges, uniforms, dogs, and guns. And you don't really want to mess with those people. And if you look at, um, again, I was, I was listening to somebody with a degree of expertise on this subject um, last night, um, Mr. Lance Armstrong. And he said, if you look at all the great anti-doping successes, okay, there's only one which was actually led by anti-doping authorities, and that was getting the Russians at Sochi. Mm. Okay. All of the rest have been led by journalists. So think of the Icarus um, program. They or they've been led by law enforcement. Okay, Operation Puerto, um, even Lance Armstrong being brought down, he was brought down by a guy who was previously a Treasury agent, Travis mm -hmm. Tiger. Um, and didn't, and again, he never failed the test. What they got him on was the legal process of people bearing witness against him. And in the end, that's what happened. Um, it's about law enforcement. It's not about the anti-drugs thing. And any one of these events, if you want to set them up, they're going to fall foul of law enforcement. And they're also, they're also going to fall foul of civil law. Because if you think just how much of a pickle rugby, American football, possibly even, you know, English soccer, you know, English football is at the moment with um, CTE. CTE. You know, from heading a ball. And we're not, we're not, you know, th this wasn't, no, but, well, okay, maybe some people did say back in the 80s or the 60s and 70s, I don't know if we should be letting athletes head balls like that. There's a lot of impact. I, I literally don't remember anybody saying that. Me neither. I, I can under, there's always been like a bit of worry about how like tough rugby was physically and how tough it became. And again, if you listen to science and sport podcast with Ross Tucker, he will go into extensive detail about how much the rules of rugby have changed to avoid catastrophic injuries um, and how hard they work to try and keep players safe. But they're still, they're facing potentially the end of their sports as an organized, recognized, you know, national and international governing bodies from being sued by people who have degenerative brain conditions which can be linked to the sport hmm. and so if you like if that's the if that's the way that sport is going where practicing your sport it being dangerous and you end up with long-term health conditions because of that i think the you know the one of the most important parts of banning drugs in sport is simply protecting those sports. It's simply yeah. turning around and saying, well, you can't sue us because you took loads and loads of drugs and now it's bad for you because we said you weren't allowed to and we tried to stop you. 
Um, right. you know and, and so, it's, you know, the, the event itself will end in a welter of lawsuits from people who have destroyed their own testosterone and red blood cell production. Yeah. You know how litigious the Americans are. They'll be the first to do it, but it'll it'll go it'll go elsewhere. Um, I literally, um, I literally think when when this kind of like enhanced games thing was announced, there was probably a bunch of lawyers in the U.S. who were just like saying, "Oh yes, oh yes, come to me, come to me. Um, I I I can sue for you." So I I just don't I. The enhanced games, I think it's wrong. I think it's morally wrong. I also just think it can never happen. Yeah. Uh, there's also the issue of, and we've talked to people on this pod, uh, we've talked to rowers, we've talked to coaches, um, people like Dan Armstrong and Putney Pete about just how much pressure young people are under in terms of they're constantly being bombarded with images of alleged perfection on Instagram, how much young athletes identify with their sport because they're getting into sport um, at a time when they're forming their identity and that identity and the sport become coterminous. So rather than recognizing that they are who they are and this is what they do, they start seeing themselves as what they do. I think if you open the door to saying, and they're they're already under enough pressure to try and achieve certain things and look like certain things and be someone. Um, I think if you open the door to saying, yeah, just take what you want to get to where you want to go at that formative stage is incredibly dangerous. And you'd like to think that parents would step in. Um, I mean, having seen some parents on sidelines and what have you at football games, perhaps parents shouldn't and be stepping in, but most of the more responsible ones would be going, no, don't take the little blue pills that, you know, you're 14, you're 15. What are you doing? Um, it's a minefield. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, I, I do, I think, you know, if there is a sport that becomes big, that is openly enhanced, um, I think there are lots of sports out there that, are much more enhanced than they should be um we can't really mention names but everybody knows what we're talking about um sports involved a lot of cross training for fitness um yes, those or lifting in a powerful fashion mm. um or lifting specialized weight objects um special ways yes that I, I think there are sports out there that still remain popular and still have um, a healthy bunch of kids coming through into them. But frankly, they have to pretend and they have to spend a lot of time and money and effort and sometimes lawyers feeling on pretending to actually keep themselves in a position where people are going to actually be willing to send their kids to that gym or that type of training session, because mm. otherwise you're just going to think I'm not, I'm not letting my kid get involved in that. Um, unless you're absolutely desperate. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to edit this bit out, but I think we should maybe do the talent thing as a separate pod. Cause I think that's, yeah. about, that's about an hour and a bit of fairly solid 
I, 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 th- I think that would probably be a really good idea. Yeah. We like come back to talent next week. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, talent and training, maybe, or some, or, or something like that. I think so. so. So yes, we are fundamentally against the enhanced games. We think we've already got lots of them. Um, for one thing. Secondly, we're morally and ethically opposed to it. Thirdly, um, we're both having issues with sleep and weeing a lot in the night. So if there's a sudden announcement or we suddenly arrive on your podcast ears, suddenly sporting new biceps and and remarkably uh, developed traps, strange things have happened. Strange things have happened. And um, I I do hope that actually, if that were to be the case, we'd both be a honest enough to withdraw from all competitive sport. What, in, including like tiddlywinks against children? Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, sort of like, yeah, we we wouldn't get involved in organised. We we wouldn't suddenly say, oh yes, I'm going back to like try and win Masters A through E I would, in the I would. single skull. Um, I, I I I do I do think you know it's just like. I don't mind people who like come out and say, right, I'm, I take this and I'm just going to race for, for time at my local park run and ignore me in any list of like, who's gone the fastest. But, you know, I don't think you can get, you can do that and then just get involved without telling people what you're doing. Yeah. I would, I would step back from competitive sport and I'd be very open about what I was taking and why I was taking it because I was brought up not to cheat. And that might sound incredibly whimsical in the modern day and age, but it's just the reality of my familial background. Secondly, I've always believed that you should see how far you can go with what you've got. And at the time, it was a source of massive frustration to me because I I would have loved to have a, a 2K time as fast as Lewins, to be quite bluntly honest. But as I've got older, I've actually come to treasure how much I achieved and Lewin achieved and we achieved collectively as as colleagues at Agecroft and the and also the rest of the crew that we did it with, because it, it was actually a very, very special moment. We just maybe didn't recognize it or enjoy it as much, which is a completely different podcast topic we maybe didn't enjoy it as much at the time because we were, we were still striving to get better. We had that, we had that mindset, yeah. but now I'm very happy with what I did and how I did it. I'm I'm also very happy with, with the work I put in. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that I spent that time on the water and I spent that time on the rowing machine and lifting heavy bits of iron up and down. And I'm actually really glad that I found it would have been the easiest thing in the world, I think, for me to do all those things because I enjoyed them. I, I, I genuinely enjoyed them. And then not compete and not lose. But for many many years as a rower i went out there with no chance of success with no you know i knew that it was like being successful was going to be there was an element of 
well, if they turn up, we've lost. If they turn up, we've lost, et cetera, et cetera. But we still turned up knowing, knowing that we didn't have a chance of winning. And we put ourselves out there to lose. And actually, getting your backside kicked, it is genuinely character building. Getting your backside kicked and going back to the gym and trying harder and then going out again and getting your backside kicked slightly less badly and then going out again and getting your backside kicked slightly less badly and then eventually going out there, oh, wow, look, we've won. And that genuinely, that winning that first race, that God, that was joy. It was. That it was joy. And that that is something, you know, and it's like I look back on that sunny afternoon at Peterborough when me and the boys from Furnival won our first eights race. And that was our that was our novice pop. And we were just like, you know, <laughs> Eric Murray, you can keep your Olympic gold medals, mate. Um it's- you, you, you can keep everything. So Graham Benson, ah, oh, you f- you think you had fun equaling the Matthew Pinsnay's British indoor record? You weren't there in that boat in Novitz Eights with Furnival. That was victory. It is, and the fact that you had to earn it makes it sweeter. I mean, the the simple fact of the matter is. Any athlete, so if you're listening to this, think of an athlete that you respect or you revere or or whose achievements you've watched. Um, They have lost more than they have won. Even even the unbeaten ones, before they're unbeaten, they lose an awful lot of races. Now, I don't want to quote Steven Tyler from Aerosmith because he is literally the walking antithesis of everything that we've just talked about, being a pharmaceutical nightmare going back to the late 60s. But in the song Dream On, he said, he sang very movingly, you have to know um, how to lose to win. And it is actually a reality. I, I have I've got an unbeaten head season at Agecroft under my belt, but I cannot tell you the amount of times that we lost before we started to win. And it is, you know, the joke is, yes, it's character building and the character that it builds is that of an embittered loser, but... If you get it without working for it, it's it's it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. You've got to earn it. And part of the earning it is the learning process. And part of the learning process is you're gonna come up against a green lake who has more firepower than you. You're gonna you're gonna go down the river sideways at Runcorn and Dennis is gonna say, walk home. That's just the reality of it. It is. Um Ah, I think that's probably a good place to end. But ladies and gentlemen, don't do drugs unless your doctor tells you to. Buy us a coffee and then, instead. And then buy us a coffee instead. And But if you're going to do drugs because your doctor tells you, you to, at least be honest about it. Exactly. So everybody knows where they stand. Thank you very much for listening. Um, as Aaron says, please do buy us a coffee um, if you're enjoying the content and would like us to keep making said content. Um, that's goodbye from us. And a goodbye from me and him and us and everyone.